time, you've heard Father's Day message preached from Proverbs 31. This is usually Mother's Day, but you're going to see this is actually, I think, a little more appropriate. Um, but obviously uh, very applicable for Mother's Day as well. Um, so turn over to Proverbs 31. Um, and uh, This is going to be our last chapter. It will be done with the book of Proverbs. Um, my desire is to do Proverbs 31 in two or three weeks. And uh, then we will wrap it up for the, for the summer. So, uh, if you will look at um, chapter 31, we'll show you how it's divided up. Uh, you have it basically in two sections. It's one unit. It's all the words of Lemuel. And there's two sections. There's verses one to nine, where we're going to be this morning, and then there's verses 10 through 31, which is this poem. Uh, about an excellent wife, which you are very familiar with, I'm sure. Um, so there's two sections, and we're going to be in verses 1 to 9 this morning. Um, so let me read it, and then we'll dive in and look at it. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my bowels? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give drink to the one who's perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So that's it. That's our uh, passage this morning. And on the surface, it doesn't look like there's a lot there, but there's actually uh, a lot there. It's, uh, it's really good, very, very applicable um, for us men and fathers especially, but for everybody here. Uh, when people think of Proverbs 31, like we said, they normally only, always think of the, uh, the poem to the excellent wife. These verses are a little um, overlooked. Don't usually pay attention to them, but we're going to dig into them this morning. Um, as you can see, it, it, it's very royal. It happens in a royal setting, as most wisdom literature does. Um, and yet it is extremely applicable for us, because especially us men and fathers, we have a similar function to a king. He was the shepherd of the nation, and the men and the families, the head of the home, are the shepherds of their wives and their children. Um, so let's dive in. Proverbs 31 begins very similar to how chapter 30 of Proverbs began. <clears throat> Look at the introduction, verse 1. It says, these are the words of a king. His name is Lemuel. It reads, the words of Lemuel, a king. Now, how did chapter 30, verse 1 begin? The words of Agur, right? It says, the words of Agur, the son of Jacob. So it's a very similar um, beginning. And much like Agur, we know very little about Lemuel. Um, not sure who this guy was. Some people conjecture that it was Solomon. You've probably heard that. This mother here is Bathsheba. Um, it's all conjecture. Uh, there's really not a lot of evidence for it. And as we dig around, we're going to see that it most likely was not uh, Solomon who wrote this. 
One thing is that he calls his sayings the words of the mule. Um, Solomon is the only one whose sayings are called Proverbs. So if you look through the book of Proverbs, you have these different collections in the book, and the only person that has his sayings called Proverbs is Solomon. So you have the Proverbs of Solomon, the Proverbs of Solomon. Everyone else, they don't, their sayings are not called Proverbs, they're called the words. So you have the collection in chapter 22, verse 17, they're called the words of the wise. It was probably adapted some, from wisdom literature um, of Egyptian origin, some scholars think. Then chapter 30, verse 1, you have the words of Agur, not the Proverbs. This so is the fact here that says the words of Lemuel clues us in that um, this guy's probably not Solomon. He's not called Proverbs. Um, it was probably honorific. Why does Solomon say, why are they called Proverbs? It's probably an honorific way to, to honor him. He gets the title Proverbs. And uh, it was actually also a play on words, I think. Um, in Hebrew, Solomon's name is Shalomot from, and you know the word, Shalom means peace, right? Well, the word for proverb in Hebrew is Mashal. It's the same three root continents, just in a different order. So it's a play on words. So you have Mishalei Shalomot, the, the say the Proverbs of Solomon. So that's probably why he gets that title as well. So all that to say, uh, this introductory lines about this, the words of Lemuel is a big indicator. Uh, this guy's probably not Solomon. More than that, these last two chapters, chapter 30 and 31, seem to be added as sort of appendices to the rest of the book of, of Proverbs. Um, you know that Solomon didn't just sit down one day and write the book of Proverbs. It's not how it is. How it works. It's a collection. And we know that the final form of this book didn't come till the earliest is the time of Hezekiah, right? In chapter 25, verse 1, it says these are the saints that the men of Hezekiah copied. Um, so it's a collection over time, and these chapters seem to have been added at a later period of time by inspired editors and authors. So these last two chapters um, are presented to us with non-Solomonic titles, authors. Um, and like Agur, another very interesting thing is we said Agur was probably not an Israelite. There's very good chances that Lemuel was not an Israelite king as well. Um, we hear nothing of the, uh, King Lemuel anywhere in biblical history. And a lot of the vocabulary that you will read in chapter 31 it, it has Aramaic, not Hebrew um, influence. It actually has a little bit of Arabic influence in it. Um, so those are also indicators. But he was a believer. Look over at verse 30. He and his mother were believers. How do I know? Because look at the core, the foundation. is exactly what the core and foundation of the whole book is. Chapter 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. He believed in the covenant God. And so, like Agri, is probably a Gentile, but he converted to faith of Israel. Certainly was a, a believer, as was his his mother. Um, so all that to say, this guy, probably not Solomon, but he's similar to Agri. Believer, maybe a Gentile, and we don't know much more than that. Um, and yet, look at the, uh, the next point. Um, these are words of his mother, and yet they're inspired. It is an oracle. It says an oracle. And we saw this again with Agra. That's what he called his saints, an oracle. It means a prophetic utterance, a prophetic burden. It indicates inspiration. 
Those are not just words of a man. So a saying that's probably not Solomon. It's not undercutting inspiration. All right? He's claiming from up front, this is inspired and needs to be listened to and taken seriously. This word oracle means a burden, a perfect burden. It means something that's weighty, that's to be paid attention to. It's often a judgment oracle. So we get that up front. It's meant to wake us up. Pay attention. It's important. It's from God, and it's of weighty significance. Finally, these words originated from his mother. Words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. This is the queen mother instructing her son, who would one day be king. And the fact that you get, at the very beginning, the words of King Lemuel tells us that he got the point. <laughs> he learned them. He, he internalized them, and now he's passing them, he's passing them on. And we've seen repeatedly in the book of Proverbs the father and the mother instructing the children. But this is the first time in the whole book of Proverbs that we hear the voice of the mother. It's almost always the voice of the father, but this is, this is very unique. These are the words of a mother directly to her son. Um, so this is Father's Day, but let me just give a quick um, word to the moms. Don't undervalue the importance and influence of your teaching. Uh, you are just as important in the instruction of your children as the fathers. Um, you can clearly see that modeled in this entire chapter. And really, a brief look through church history will show that it was often the mothers who were of most influence and significant in the lives of, of godly men. Uh, think of St. Augustine and a number of others, if you know their, their stories. The words of parents, especially mothers, are very important. It's how God designed the home to operate, the society to be preserved. So this is the queen mother instructing her son and, uh, and it's a royal setting. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not applicable to us. It is very applicable to us. Because uh, we already mentioned the leader, the king, was to shepherd the nation as he modeled wisdom and godliness for the nation to follow. Um, and so as husbands, as fathers, our role as head is not given to us so that we could domineer or so that we could demand um, service from others. But it's a weighty responsibility of shepherd and of leader, primarily in the things of God. Our role is to model godliness, is to model wisdom, is to set the pace of a pursuit for God in our families. This, goal, this role is not given to us that we could demand service, but we can lay our lives down in selfless service, in selfless leadership, in selfless teaching. Not that we would demand others to do so for us. So we're going to see in this passage that the duty of kings is to guard against self-indulgence and to give himself um, to caring for the weak and vulnerable. So this is the main point. The call is on every one of us, especially the men, to beware of using your position for self-gratification and instead give yourself to the well-being of those entrusted to you. That's how I would summarize this entire section. Your position is not for self-gratification. It's actually for selfless service to those in your care. So let's look at it. The main body begins in verse 2 with his mother entreating him 
passionately. It says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Now, there's some challenges to this verse as well. Um, the first is uh, these questions. It's kind of unusual for a section to begin with a mother asking her son questions. And beyond that, it's confusing what the questions are about. Um, if you have a KJV, or I think NASB even, it's very similar to Hebrew. It's literal. It's just, what my son? What son of my What son of my vows? Uh, ESV puts it, what are you doing, my son? But it's literally just, what, what, what? Um, that's a little confusing. I, I, I think, actually, the NIV gets it right. Who, does anyone have NIV? Can you read it? Verse 2. Okay, does it have a verb in anything? It doesn't have a, a verb or anything? It's just, it's just sun, son of my womb? The NIV I looked at. The Holman does? Okay, what's the Holman say? Holman says, what should I say, my son? Okay. What son of my womb? What son of my mouth? Okay, okay. Um, yeah, that, that, that would still be maintaining the, the word is, is what. The, maybe I was looking at a, a different version of the, the NIV. Either way, um, some people translate it as listen, pay attention, listen. Now that would make a lot more sense because often in Proverbs, the saints begin by what? The parent admonishing the child to pay attention to what's coming. Um, and, uh, and so I think that actually is a better translation and some scholars think that in Hebrew the word is, is what, but they think it's of a, a different language origin, probably Arabic, which would be appropriately translated, listen, pay attention. So that's why we're going to take it. He is calling the son, pay attention, listen up. This is important. Heed. And she calls him my son, and then it escalates to the time before his birth, saying son of my womb. So it's going back in time. This is the one she gave birth to and Al longs for. And then it escalates again by calling the time before he was conceived. Son of my vows or son of my prayers. So it sounds very similar to uh, the story of Hannah, right? She prayed. She made a vow for her son before she even conceived him. And maybe this uh, lady did the same here. But either way, she loves her son and has committed him to the Lord. And that's what the name Lemuel means. He who has been devoted to the Lord and committed to the Lord. Um, and she's intent on teaching him his ways. Now, we're ready for the meat. That was all preparation. His mother begins by giving him two pitfalls that are to be actively avoided. In verses 3 to 7. Two pitfalls to be actively avoided by kings and leaders. The first is the pitfall of a preoccupation with women. Or a warning against the destructive power of lust. Look at verse 3. Do not give your strength to women, to those, to your ways, to those who destroy kings. First thing I want you to notice is the word women is plural. He's not saying, she's not saying don't get married. He's not saying to your wife. It's not a command to celibacy. It's a warning about the great danger that comes from a craving for women in addition to one's wife could be a reference to the king's harem, his concubines, or to multiple lovers. 
it's especially pertinent to a king who possessed all power and could get whatever he, he wanted. Um, and the command here is from mother to son that he must not use his power for position and position for self-gratification. That's not how a king should live. That's not how he should operate. But why is this a warning? Not to have this craving for women. Well, look what it says. What is parallel to women in the second line? What is it? Your ways to who? To those who destroy kings. That's the warning. One does not need to look long in the Bible to see how this craving, this lustful desires for women is the downfall of many kings. Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Verse 1. Solomon is described in this way. This is the beginning of his downfall, one of the primary causes. 11 verse 1. Now King Solomon loved men foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Ammonite, Moabite, Edomite, Sidonite, Hittite, the nations in which the Lord said, the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. They turned away his heart. It's exactly what Deuteronomy 17 warned against. And we could jump back to the life of David. We know exactly what happened to David. His lustful desire with Bathsheba resulted everything after that point in his life. You can read in, in 2 Samuel uh, was the divine discipline of the Lord, conspiracy within his kingdom, rebellion within his house, the death of a child, and ultimately harm of the nation that he was given to govern. In Proverbs 5-7, through 7, remember back where in those lectures makes the same point that a life driven by lustful cravings outside of the boundaries of monogamous marriage Beyond the fact that it's a sin against God, which should be enough, but it is destructive to self, the home, and the people that is under one's leadership. So go back to Proverbs 31. One more thing to point out from this verse. It says, do not give your strength and your ways to women. Now what does that mean? How do you do that? The word for strength can mean power, or it can even mean wealth. Um, I think in this context, it means the king's ability to rule well. Uh, his strength, his wealth, his, his power. And the idea is that being consumed and controlled by lust will greatly impair one's ability to lead well. Because it will drain his money. Think back to chapter 5 through 7. Um, the, the adulterer, he's bankrupted by the avenging husband who comes after him. It will drain one's time and dull his focus. And as a result, he will lose control of his reign. One gives his strength to women by allowing his strength, wealth, and vigor to be used up in the feeding of his lusts rather than in what they were intended for. Bruce Walkie said it like this, Gratification of lust distracts his attention from serving the people, blunts his wit, undermines his good judgment, 
exposes him to palace intrigues and squanders the national wealth better spent to promote the national good. In other words, self-gratification will destroy his ability to fulfill his role of selfless service to those entrusted to him. And uh, next week we're going to see the contrast, the right way forward, which is um, his, his wife. He'll be able to rule well if he's devoted to his wife, and an excellent wife is essential for effective leadership. So what's the application? First application to women. Note that these are words of a mother to a son. Mothers, your sons need this kind of instruction. One of the great privileges and duties of a mother is to instruct their children in this kind of wisdom, or the kind of women to avoid, and to model the kind of women they should value and, and, and cultivate if it's a daughter and pursue if it's a son. And that's going to be next week. Application for men, be on guard against lust in your lives in any form be putting it to death at the first risings in your heart. Here we get the severe consequences that come from it. But our ultimate motivation, ultimate motivation is that it's a sin against God. Uh, David in Psalm 51 said, against what? Against you. And you only have I sinned. So feel the weight of it. Be putting it to death when it's small. Number two, see the power sinful cravings for women and self-gratification can have to impair and hinder effective leadership in the home, the community, and in the church. Whether it is fantasizing, pornography, extramarital relationships that have gone beyond friendship, Proverbs tells us that it will harden the heart, destroy the home, and offend the Lord. And the point of our passage is that it will hinder effective leadership in what we were called to do. It will sap the soul of strength because of guilt. It will dull and distract the heart from its duties of worship and leading our families in worship. It will waste our possessions, which should be used for righteousness, and it will be a poor model to lead others astray. And Paul required the same thing for elders, right? He said... The overseer must be blameless above reproach. What? The husband of one wife. That's not just a, a command against polygamy. It means singly devoted to your wife. Wholly devoted to your wife. So this is the first pitfall that must be avoided by everyone, but especially men and fathers. We have a task at hand. And uh, before we move on, I just ask, have you failed? which every man in this room has failed on some level. Listen to some good news from the book of Proverbs. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and renounces them will have what? Mercy. Abundant grace and pardon. And that is through Christ. And so the question is, have you failed? That's not the question. The question is, are you repenting? You're putting it to death. Are you fighting? Are you growing? You can still be an effective leader. Time is not out for you. There's hope. So aim at this. Make this a priority in your life. 
Look at the next pitfall that we get here in verses 4 through 7. It's the pitfall of intoxication or a warning against the destructive power of drunkenness. Look at verses 4 to 5. We get the thread of intoxication for kings. It says, It is not for kings on the mule. It's not for kings to drink wine or rulers to take strong drink. Lest they drink and forget what's been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. It's a thread of intoxication for kings. And this thread is very similar to the threat of lust. Both will do the same thing to you. Both will dull the senses. Both will distract the mind from its duty. Both will hinder effective leadership is the, the point. And the topic of alcohol is another one of those very big topics in the book of Proverbs that we haven't had a chance to dive into, but we're going to look at it a little bit this morning. Um, wine, you can see here, means the same thing as it does today. It's that drink that's produced from fermented grapes. And this word strong drink, um, it's, it's not the meaning that you would think of hard liquor, distilled alcohol. They didn't have that in the ancient world. It refers to any beverage with intoxicating properties. So um, it was often made out of wheat or barley. So very similar to what we would think of uh, beer um, in our modern context. Um, and a survey through the Old Testament will, seem, will present seemingly contradictory views of these two um, of these uh, beverages. On the one hand, they're spoken of very positively. They are signs of blessing. They're signs of abundance. They're signs of God's favor on the land. And in the very same breath, um, they're spoken with great danger. And drunkenness, especially, is an abomination in God's sight. On the one hand, um, they can fill the heart with joy. And on the other, it will lead one into error. It may be a sign of blessing, and it may be a sign of sin. So the question is, is it a contradiction? And the answer is, no, it is, it is not. But wine is a symbol of blessing. Drunkenness is always condemned in the scriptures. The problem and danger with alcohol is its ability to intoxicate and fill people with drunkenness, which is clearly a sin um, and to be avoided by God's people. And while I cannot say that the scripture commands total abstention from alcohol, I don't think it does. It doesn't. Nevertheless, it does condemn drunkenness in all of its forms it means. And so there's a balance. And in our culture, you're seeing the pendulum swing in the other direction. So a few generations ago, it's man, if a drop of alcohol touched your tongue, you're in sin. I don't think that's right because it's neglecting the other balance of Scripture. But the pendulum's going the other way say it doesn't matter. And the Scripture gives us both sides to say it might not be sin. You have to be very careful. And that is exactly what we get here this morning. Um, we don't have time, but you can go to Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29 and following um, for a description of how uh, it works. Uh, very interesting. So in our passage, Lemuel's mother tells him that wine and strong drink are not for kings to indulge in. They're not for people in places of leadership. So she commanded him to abstain totally. I don't know. I don't think so. Because the very next verse highlights um, intoxication is where her warning is at. Nevertheless, I would say that if we take these warnings seriously about drunkenness, 
uh, we'll be very careful about how much, if any, uh, we do consume. So it's a balance we want. Uh, we want to feel the, the weight of these warnings. Let's look at verse 5. Why does she command this for the mule? She says, lest they drink and forget. You drink, you'll be intoxicated, and the danger is coming under the control of a foreign substance. And the danger is that one would forget righteousness and fail to lead and execute righteousness. So in other words, it is a craving for righteousness, as we've seen through the whole book of Proverbs. It's a craving to please the Lord, a craving to live a life in line with God's will, being able to clearly think and obey God with all of our mind and will and emotions and reason, that anything that would hinder that, we are very careful with. And it's not just alcohol. That's one of them. There's many other things. It's not for kings to drink and be drunk with wine, lest he forget, it says. Alcohol has the ability to dull the senses, has the ability to cloud the judgment, skew the thinking, influence our minds such that we lose our ability to pursue righteousness with absolute 100% zeal and clarity. Paul said it this way, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is what? Debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Believers were to be under the total influence, not of something else, but of who? Of the Holy Spirit. To be filled means to be under the control of something, or to be controlled by the Spirit and avoid being brought under the control of anything else. Why? It's because we have a race to run. You know, Hebrews put aside every sin and weight that so easily besets you. And it's not just alcohol. There's many things, often good things, that hinder our race. Our desire, Proverbs is calling us to, is to be so desirous of righteousness, not to earn anything, but because we trust and fear the Lord and we're careful with anything that would hinder it. And that's exactly what this verse tells us here. And the king's job is to do what? Is uphold justice for the weak and the vulnerable. And that will be threatened if he's drunk. So look at verses 6 to 7. So that was the warning, the danger of intoxication for kings. Now we get the futility of intoxication for the needy. It says, give strong drink to those who are perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now, these are some more challenging verses, um, a number of interpretations on what to do with these verses here. Um, but probably the most common one is that um, the, these verses commend the use of alcohol for medicinal purposes. I would say most of us have probably heard that. This is what it should be used for. And I'm sure there's definitely principles there, and uh, I definitely wouldn't negate that. Uh, but I'm not sure that's what's going on here. Look at who this group of people is that he's talking about. Perishing is just in that first line. And the next three lines, it's very general. It's those in bitter distress. It's a very general term. It's those who are in poverty and those who are in misery. Um, Proverbs never commends use of alcohol to fix your poverty. <laughs> That's never the solution uh, to fix your pain. In fact, 
the, the, the irony here is if you take that, what's happening? The king is giving alcohol to those in poverty to dull their pain when actually he should be given what? He should be given food, right? So I don't think that's what's what's going on here. Uh, that would actually be injustice to give them alcohol just dull their pain so they can die in peace when he actually should be taking care of their, their needs. So I don't think this is a good a good option here. Another option is that is a bit of sarcasm going on. Look at verse 6. It says give. Um, in Hebrew, you can say that this is a plural command. It's literally let people give or let wine be given um, to those who are perishing. In other words, I don't think these verses are commanding how the king should operate to the poor and needy. We're going to get that in the next two verses, verses 8 and 9. These verses um, are giving a little bit of a little bit of sarcasm to highlight the futility of drunkenness. The poor and needy can dull their pain and forget their troubles for a little while through strong drink, but it ultimately does them no good either, is the idea. Intoxicants are useless for a king and are of no help to those in bitter distress, because it never improves their um, situation either. I, I, so, yeah. I'm just thinking of, of the crucifixion of Jesus. And yes. Him the, the, the vinegar to drink. Yep. Isn't that kind of give a strong drink to the parish. Mm-hmm. And Pastor Carroll referenced that, and he said, I, I, I didn't have time to go into the, the backgrounds, yeah. but he said that the Jews apply that principle that, that's drawn from here to there. So I certainly think it is a principle, and whether it is uh, opioids or uh, 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 alcohol, whatever, to help people dine in bitter distress, all those things, I think that's perfectly uh, understandable. It's but in this context, um, what is exactly going on with these two verses? Uh, it just seems like it's, it's out of place. I mean, the king would be giving alcohol to the people in poverty to help them uh, with their distress and get over it. It doesn't seem like it like it fits, especially as she's highlighting the, the destructive nature. So I think it's an application. Not sure the Jewish background. Not sure how, how strongly that was held. Um, but um, that's certainly a uh, principle, I think. So that's good. That's option number two. Um, look at option number three. I just give you this quote by Trevor Longman. That's how he puts it. Lemuel's mother commands the use of alcohol um, to the poor, may be seen in part as a strategy to discourage her royal son. In other words, she may be saying the equivalent to, don't act like those derelicts who get drunk to forget their hardships. Act like the king who you are. The king is the human representative of God who protects the rights of those who lack power, the needy and the, the destitute. So those are some options, and I think the answer is probably a combo between numbers two and three. In other words, intoxication is to be avoided by kings because it will hinder faithfulness in one's calling, and intoxication is to be avoided because of how useless it is. is the point. It is useless. It can only temporarily dull the pain, leaving one no better off for kings and for the poor. The king can joyfully forget justice for a while, as the poor can forget their poverty. But when they wake up, they're no better off. Don't stoop to that level, is what Lemuel's mother tells him. So that's the two pitfalls. Lust and alcohol. Man, just look at leadership today in the, in the world. <laughs> the world hasn't changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Finally, his mother explains the essence of faithful leadership. Wrap it up here. Look at verses 8 through 9. It says, Open your mouth for the mute, 
for the rights of all who are destitute. There's the poor again, is how you should be treated. Today. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So verses 3 to 7 were the pathway to avoid, the pitfalls to avoid. Now it's the right way forward, the essence of faithful leadership is given to us here. Those in leadership, especially a king, had the right, had the commission on him to protect the vulnerable, the weak. Here in verse 8, the mute. Now, it doesn't mean they're physically mute. They don't have any social influence. They're, they're, they're poor. They have no ability to speak out for themselves, defend themselves. And if the king didn't defend them, they have, they have no hope. They'll be taken advantage of by, by everybody that has money and power. So the question is, why does she mention this? Of all the things that she could mention about what it looks like to be a king, why mention this? I think the reason is because you read the Old Testament of anything that highlights what the king's true character was, whether he was a righteous king or a wicked king, it was this more than anything. Did he defend those who could not repay him? Defend and protect those who were vulnerable. Although he could probably get bribes from the rich and pervert justice, but he's going to stand by the, the weak and, and protect them. Um, that's the essence, in other words, of faithful leadership in the Old Testament. That's what it looked like to be the righteous king. So what does this have to do with us? None of us are kings, um, nor do we have this kind of a, a sway in, in society. Certainly, I think it means that we should care for the needy among us, but I think that misses the point. The point here is that this is the essence of, of leadership. This is what it looks like. And so for us, the call is to devote ourselves to total faithfulness in whatever sphere the Lord has placed us in. Make that your devotion. Avoid these pitfalls that are going to distract you from it. And pursue this with selfless devotion. So the question I close with, ask you, is where has God placed you? Men or women? Every one of us has responsibilities. Every one of us has position, whether it's at work or at school or at home. Where has he placed you? Who specifically has he placed in your charge? What are your specific responsibilities? Be faithful in that. Make that your goal. And avoid uh, the pitfalls that are, that are on the way. Uh, then jump back to Agar. The goal is not exaltation. Not self-gratification. It's just being one of those little locusts. Faithfully devoted to the king's work. That's true greatness. And, uh, that's what we're after this morning. So that is the first half of the Saints of King Mule. It's quite applicable to all of us, and especially us fathers here this morning. Father's Day. Um, any questions, comments, things that are confusing, things you'd like to add? Yes? He, he stresses, the scripture stresses kings, but in my mind, Father's Day, okay, being the father of the family who is looking after you, isn't that the reason really is. And I think yes. it's something, I don't think you ever, obviously you don't arrive at it perfectly because we're all in progress, but I think, as I'm thinking about my life, how I want to grow in that, I think I want to grow in these motivations which are the weight of it, which drive me to, man, if I'm going to be this way, the spiritual lead in my home, I have to be in the word, I have to be worshiping God, I have to be cultivating that so I can take the lead 
that my family can follow, and I'm going to avoid everything, even good things. TV, whatever it is, enjoy it. Man, is it hindering from this pursuit of the Lord so that I can take leadership and sort of wave the flag and call my family to follow? Let's, let's go after Christ. And that's the goal. That's the call. That's what I'm after. And it's, it's passages like this that wake me up. Take it seriously, Michael. It's a big, big calling. Michael, I want to yes. commend you in that, and it's not just your family. You know that it's God and His kindness mm-hmm. when that's done well, how it trickles out to everybody. Because I think of like your dad and mm-hmm. his relationship with even my own son. Mm-hmm. And every time I see your dad, what a gift that is to our family. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm always like trying to remind this guy and encourage this guy that we are so drawn. We as women are so drawn to submitting to a man. We're going against our own nature, but man, our culture is the exact opposite. Men are passive. Men sit back. We don't take the lead. Uh, we're not the spiritual leaders. But we're fighting against yeah. the culture and upstream too. Yep, that's right. Because we're supposed to be this independent yep. feminist. Yep. You know, we're going to so get quite a uh, quite a we, lesson on that yeah, next we week in Proverbs thirty-one. So yeah, it's really good. So excellent. Thank you. It's really good. Any other thoughts? King the Mule. It's good stuff. It really is. And I'm looking forward to uh, the uh, next week. Be reading it. Be chewing on it. See if you can figure out. Um, remember we've talked about how important structure it is. The book of Proverbs. Dig in it. See if you can figure out what's going on in, these, in this poem to the excellent wife. And uh, what the main point is. And, uh, and we'll be back next week to dive in. And it's really good. Really, really good. So, Alright, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And... Um, Lord, you're worthy. You're worthy to be known and loved and worshipped with all of our affection and heart and mind and soul. And it is so easy to get distracted from that. Um, Oh, Father, Lord, we want to be faithful. Thank you for your mercy in Christ. We're all failures. And yet there's mercy and abundance. um, To forgive us, to reconcile us with you, but then to restore us so that we can start living and grow and continue to be changed in the image of Christ. There's hope here, Lord. Massive hope. Help us, Lord, to feel the weight, each one of us, of where you've placed us. To go 100%, pushing aside everything that would hinder it, to know you, and to wave the flag and call others to follow as we pursue you. We love you and thank you. Prepare our hearts for the sermon to come. In Jesus' name, amen.